The challenge, of course, in the beginning is that every downturn or pivot feels like it's sort of the end of the world and like you can't get through it. What I realize is that those moments pass and, and you figure them out and often better things come from it. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I wanna welcome this week's guest, Sarah Flint, to our show today. In 2013, Sarah was on a mission to create luxury shoes made from the finest materials that not only looked, but also felt amazing. In the early days of the company, Sarah was a full-time nanny and was looking to get this brand off the ground in her evenings and the weekends. Sarah devoted a lot of her time on product creation and networking, and she ultimately got into high-end retailers like Barney's, Bloomingdale's, and Shopbop. This opened up a door for her to have many celebrities take notice of her shoes, and she had women like Meghan Markle, Amal Clooney, and Lady Gaga wearing her products. Although this was amazing for her and her brand, Sarah still felt like something was missing. She felt like she couldn't create a meaningful connection with her customers and was designing close to 200 products a year that had very slim margins. In order to stay in business, she knew she had to change her business model. She canceled all of her orders in 2017 and decided to go down the direct-to-consumer route. Despite many investors thinking she was crazy, she went with her gut and now it has seen incredible success. We'll talk to Sarah about how she managed to pivot her business from the wholesale days to the COVID environment that we're in now, what she did to break into a very competitive luxury shoe industry, and how she went about building her brand and cult following. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Excited to chat. Me too. And it was such a blast to dig into your story because so much of your success that you've received today is purely from multiple pivots, right? And I think that's something that can resonate with a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs that are listening. So I can't wait to showcase and share your story. So I'd love to start from the beginning, as we typically do on this podcast. You grew up in a small town in Massachusetts, and you always were in love with shoes, and you were drawing since you were a little girl. So clearly, you had that creative itch in you. Can you share more about your childhood and what your upbringing was like? Absolutely. Shoes have always been my passion since I was really little and in my mother's closet and trying to wear my patent leather tap shoes to school because they were so beautiful and art as well. I had a incredibly stylish grandmother who was also an artist and lived in Paris for most of my childhood. And so my favorite thing in the world was to go visit her there and to go to not only museums and things like that, but to, you know, walk past the beautiful boutiques and ateliers and just this fascination really started at a very young age. I love that. And clearly you were very creative at a young age. And were you also entrepreneurial at the time or did you never really think about business or starting a business when you were very young? I was very industrious, always babysitting or having a lemonade stand or washing dishes for somebody so that I could make money. Early on, it was to buy a go-kart. That was like my big ambition as a kid. And so it's sort of for sure always been in there. And I think, you know, I grew up with a lot of learning disabilities. And I think that that, I'm sure you've probably spoken to many other entrepreneurs with learning disabilities. It seems to be a common thread for people who have grown up in a way where they had to sort of make changes to, you know, a traditional learning setting. 
And I think I always sort of felt I had something to prove. And when you say learning disabilities, you know, we do hear different things to your point. I feel like it's like a characteristic for entrepreneurs, especially successful ones. Can you talk a little bit more about that and really how you overcompensated or really felt like you had to prove yourself as a kid? Like, how do you think that's really impacted you in your life right now? If you can unpack it a little bit more. Definitely. So I, you know, was dyslexic and dyscalculia. I was very good. I was smart and very good at English and history, although I learned to read very, very late. But just had these areas that were really challenging for me. And what I sort of realized was that I could do as well as other kids if I worked that much harder. And so I think, you know, part of it was instilling a work ethic in me. I actually didn't learn to read until the fourth grade, but my teachers didn't know because I had memorized all of the books my mother had read to me. So I was smart, so they'd never really figured out that I wasn't learning and growing at the same paces as the other kids. It's great to see that your disability never really stopped you in the tracks because you continue to thrive and do well in school. And you actually continue to show your interest around shoes and fashion in college as well. You went to FIT, where you interned also at a bunch of design houses. Was there something in particular that you witnessed, whether it was in your internship or in school, that made you realize that there was this hole in opportunity amongst the women's shoe market? Yeah, I think it was with shoes being sort of my obsession always. I thought they were incredibly beautiful, but I also realized quite quickly as I started to figure out ways to save up for designer shoes myself that they weren't the most practical. I remember I saved up for a pair of Christian Louboutin shoes in high school. I worked in retail and I wore them to my junior prom and I wore them for about two seconds and then took them off and never put them on again because I was in so much pain. And I felt like it was just crazy that the shoes that you were spending the most money on are the ones that sit at the back of your closet. And I also felt like there was so much emphasis on these kind of really virtuosic, like 115 millimeter stilettos with all of the bells and whistles or the really like the runway shoes. And that there wasn't a huge amount of focus put on the types of shoes that women were wearing in their everyday life. So, you know, there was always a flat that was part of the collection or a low heel, but they tended to be like sort of an afterthought and not as detailed or as elegant. And so I felt like there was really an opportunity to create a shoe that was not only beautiful and comfortable, but was the type of shoe that women really wanted to wear every day and needed in their lives. That's true. There's not a lot of comfortable heels. And to your point, you know, women want to feel good. Women want to wear comfortable shoes. And I wish I knew about Sarah Flint years ago when I was in finance and I wore heels every day because I absolutely ruined my feet. But after your experience at FIT, you decided to join a manufacturing program actually based in Italy. So can you share more about what motivated you to go down that route and really some of the key takeaways? Because I'm sure you learned so much being hands-on in these manufacturing processes. Definitely. I mean, I think first and foremost there, I really fell in love with Italian craftsmanship and sort of the heritage that comes with that and the love and appreciation they have for what they're doing. It's unlike anything I had seen anywhere else, but it also sort of informed who I am as a designer in that it allowed me to figure out how to make decisions to make these shoes incredibly comfortable and wearable, but at the same time, not have them look like comfort footwear. I think one of the biggest things that I really wanted to achieve was that I didn't want this to feel like it was orthopedic or something like that. And so a lot of the details in my shoes, you know, are extremely subtle. For example, we have widened toe boxes and our pointed toe pumps. If you just 
widened the toe box and didn't do anything else, it wouldn't look great. It would look kind of too chunky and not elegant and not sexy. So things like lowering the vamp at the front, which is the line right at the front where your toes are so that you get that little bit of toe cleavage or I wish I had one next to me, but our Emma pump, for example, is our little 50 millimeter block heel. And if you flip it over, you'll see that the block heel is inset. So it is not a traditional sort of chunky block heel. It has a little bit of a lighter and more youthful feel to it. Little things like that, I don't think I would have quite understood or known how to do had I not had that experience. And I also love using my pattern making background within the design process because I find what's really beautiful about sort of vintage shoes and particularly the gorgeous vintage Italian shoes are not just that there's a bow plopped on top or feathers stuck on or studs stuck on, but the kinds of pattern work that they used to do, which I had the great pleasure of going through one of the archives of one of our manufacturers who had just beautiful shoes from the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. And half the stuff in there, they kept telling me, well, you can't do that today. We don't have the skills anymore. Or you can't do those types of things because they're so labor intensive or things like that. And that only got me sort of more excited about, <laughs> about how I could do that. But I like to really have the design details be part of the pattern work. So things like our Natalie flat, which has the asymmetrical bow is actually woven in. And they give you a little sneak peek of what something I'm working on for spring. This is a sandal that I'm holding, which is entirely, you know, these details here are entirely pattern work. They're not stuck on top. These are actually woven through. And to me, that's so much the beauty of it is having the shape come from that pattern work. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm sure when you were, I'm fast forwarding a little bit and we'll get into the details a little bit later. But like you said, the pattern work that you were interested in bringing to life, they said, you know, we don't do this anymore. And also the comfort level and the detail you wanted to bring to luxury shoes was something that they didn't really do either. So did you find that those two aspects were really roadblocks to work with the manufacturer to get, you know, your first samples or idea off the ground? Yeah, it was definitely a really big challenge. I think as well, you know, I was 25 when I started my company. So I was about 23 when I started trying to find factories. And ultimately, I was able to get into one of these factories because my teacher at that program had been a Manola Blahnik pattern maker there. And he sort of convinced them to do this sample collection for me. And typically, they don't like to take on young designers because they've been burned by them a lot of times. You know, designers will come in and they'll sample huge collections and then they don't come back with any production. And for them, that's the valuable part. Sampling is just very time consuming and expensive. And so he really vouched for me and said, you know, she wants to do this. But I remember even, you know, going in with him and him saying, you know, don't ask for too much. Don't ask for too many different things because you're young and you're new and you just want to get them to work with you. And so in the beginning, I had to sort of tone back a little bit all of the things that I wanted in those first meetings. And then as we started to get into the process, explain to them these additional things I wanted, but they sold millions and millions of pairs of these very uncomfortable stilettos and things. And so that was their example. When I asked for things like arch support, one of the factory owners actually looked at me and he was like, that's going to look too comfortable. That's not luxury. He literally said, that's going to look too comfortable. That's not luxury. And I was like, well, let me tell you, that is actually the 
ultimate luxury is being comfortable and beautiful. They had no reason to do it before because no one was asking for it. And to be honest, they primarily worked with male shoe designers. If you think about the most famous shoe designers out there, they're men. It's interesting to kind of hear your story because like you said, you know, not only being a young woman designer trying to create this new product, when you're a small business, these manufacturers are prioritizing the larger business that they have, right? Mm -hmm. So to even get in and for them, like you said, to create that sample is so expensive and it feels like they're giving you just a shot and and doing you a favor. Oh, that is 100% what it felt like. I was being done a huge favor. Huge favor. No, and I'm in the same position in terms of I'm creating a food product for women's hormones. And I feel that, right? So like whatever you're trying to bring to life, so much of it is trying to convince someone. And then from your perspective, like you said, you know, as you kind of built that relationship, you opened up the layers in terms of the details that you wanted. Do you Mm -hmm. think a lot of it was the relationship that you built with them? But I'd love to get your perspective because that applies to so many aspects of new business owners when they're looking to launch, whether it's a manufacturer or just something new. Yeah, definitely. There were a lot of sort of mini sacrifices that I felt that I made in the beginning. And it really was a fine balance of keeping the interest and engaging your partners, but at the same time doing what you know is right for your customer and what is going to make you unique as a brand. So it's really not an easy balance. And I would say, you know, I think one of the biggest things that helped me most in getting what I wanted with these partners was bringing in people who they knew and trusted and people that had more experience than I did to vouch for me and to vouch for what I was doing. I think that was hugely helpful, not only with the factories, but when it came to approaching retailers back in the States and investors and all of that was sort of like assembling a group of mentors around me that could say, hey, this is a real thing. What she's doing is missing and needed and you should pay attention. I love that. And I think, you know, mentorship is so key and important in getting any aspect of a business off the ground. So after you graduated from this program, I've read in different interviews you've done that, you know, the next thing you did was you pursued investors, you're driving around the country to host trunk shows and really build that relationship with customers directly. So can you take us back to the time of really the early days of when you're trying to get the brand off the ground? Yeah, absolutely. So when I first moved back to the States from Italy, from this program, I was actually working as a nanny um, on the Upper East Side. And I was designing and meeting with people in the mornings. And I was, you know, picking up the kids in the afternoon and taking care of them. And I always joke that some of my best market research was in the Nightingale Bamford pickup line on the Upper East Side because there were some incredibly stylish mothers there. And, oh, good point. <laughs> um, so I, got to, I got to hear a lot about what they were looking for in luxury shoes. And, you know, I think one of the, as I mentioned, sort of finding different people to mentor me, I feel like you probably get this question a lot too. Well, how do you find a mentor? How do you get one? And I think the first sort of year in between when I was designing the collection and launching the brand, I probably spent 50% of my time just meeting with people. And then anytime I met with someone saying, hey, who else should I be talking to? Is there anyone else you can think of that I should be introduced to? And often those meetings led to nowhere. And then sometimes they introduced me to someone else who was interesting. One of my board members is named Howard Sokol, and he had been uh, the CEO of Barney's New York. And he and I met the year before I launched the brand. And then three years later, when I was on the Women's Wear 
tend to watch. He emailed me as a congratulations and we got back in touch and he has now been a board member and investor in Sarah Flint. So you sort of never know how <laughs> how that comes back around, but it certainly wasn't easy. It was a lot of phone calls, a lot of pursuing people and just really being completely and totally relentless in pursuing what I wanted. And I think, like you said, you know, a lot of people say, well, how do I get mentors? And I think just taking that first step to put yourself out there, whether it's reaching out to people on LinkedIn, and I preach about this all the time because it helped me so much, similar mm-hmm. to you. You never know these seeds that you plant with the people that you meet. You know, some might be a waste of time, but you never know where it could lead you. Like you said, you know, the gentleman that you met with three years later is now engaged in your business. Mm-hmm. And starting out, so it seems like you ended up, was your first round of funding with friends and family? Can you kind of talk through that a yeah, little bit? It was mainly, it was friends and family initially. And then it was, you know, angel investors after that, a lot of very successful women who had been, you know, successful in their their own right and wanted to support other female entrepreneurs also felt passionately about this idea of creating this type of product. That's always been my least favorite part of the process, I would say. But fundraising, I would say, was the exact same thing. It was like, you know, talking to someone, having them tell you it wasn't right for them, and then saying, okay, who do you know that this would make sense for? And then speaking with them later. And I think a lot of it as well is not just that first initial meeting, but making sure that you're doing the follow-up and the follow-through, even when you know something doesn't work out at that time. A lot of my investors are people I met with early on, and I continued to sort of cultivate those relationships, send them every press piece that ever came out about Sarah Flint, even gift them shoes at different points, have them really, really fall in love with the brand and the story and have it, you know, see it grow and become what it's become today. And then they felt that they were already invested in me, in my story, in all that I had accomplished and achieved. That's actually a really great point that I don't think anyone's really brought up in any of the interviews in terms of, you know, if the investor wasn't the right fit for you at the time or wasn't comfortable yet to come in to just follow up, keep putting in front of them, whether it's certain metrics or press releases, like you said, so they're growing with you on the journey for when they feel right about it. And, you know, starting in the early days when you just raised your first round from friends and family, you know, shoes, especially women's shoes are an incredibly competitive market and you've truly revolutionized the women's shoe market. Starting out, how did you really gain that awareness? Because your budget was incredibly smaller than, you know, (laughs) the competitors that you were going against in the luxury shoe market at the time. Yeah, I think, you know, we did a lot of traditional things. A year in, we got into Barney's New York, which was a huge, huge win for us because it gave us tremendous exposure and it sort of brought other things. Once you were in Barney's, it was like people paid attention type of thing. But I think that celebrity has always been just a really, really big part of our growth and the exposure that we've gotten. Getting sort of loyal celebrity fans early on, like Heidi Klum was the first celebrity that we ever saw out in the shoes and continued to be an amazing support to the brand and where she had this one boot that we used to make called the Crawford and she had it in like six colors. And she would wear it again and again. And I think that was sort of what people started to take notice of was the fact that these women who really have access to anything that they want, any price point, anywhere, were continuing to opt into the brand and not in moments that were red carpet moments that were dressed, you know, that would have been put together by a stylist, but 
Amal Clooney going to the UN or Jessica Alba picking up her kids from soccer, those types of things. I think people were really, really interested in what this unknown brand was that these celebrities were wearing again and again. And that sort of allowed really a lot of people to discover us early on. Yeah. And that's actually interesting to know because I didn't know your focus on celebrity was there early on in the brand. And you guys have, like you said, done such a great job getting so many well-known women wearing your shoes in all different cases of their life, which is beautiful to see. Yeah. You've also talked about how getting in front of celebrities also is not a walk in the park. Can you kind of talk about the hustle that you went through early days as a brand when you were trying to get it in front of famous women like you talked about? Well, a lot of it was honestly a similar networking effect of asking people, identifying the women that I thought really represented the Sarah Flint brand and asking people, do you know anybody? Do you know this person's stylist? You know, all of that type of thing. I used to DM, I still do DM celebrities. That has been like a surprising way to actually reach people and have had people discover us that way. And then honestly, we worked with celebrity seating firms and companies that do this, that work with stylists and know how to put this product in front of people. But of course, you can only do so much, right? The product has to work from there once they get it. I was going to say, you need to have a great product that they put on their feet. Like for Sarah Flynn, they're like, oh my goodness, this is so comfortable and want them to wear it. And I think, you know, when you believe in your brand as much as you do, you really have that conviction and that confidence when you're reaching out to people, you know, whether they're investors or stylists or celebrities themselves. So I think Mm -hmm. that's a big theme in kind of how you manage your business as well. Definitely. And I think, you know, people want to support other female founders and women who are doing interesting things. And so I've always found that I have more success reaching out personally than if I have someone else do it for me. And I send something that's like really heartfelt and explaining why I'm doing what I'm doing. Exactly. And I think, like you said, you know, the keyword is it being genuine from yourself and heartfelt, you know, people feel that especially when they get so many DMs or messages. But if you do come from a genuine place, you'd be surprised how many people will respond to your message. I feel like the amount of emails or DMs or LinkedIn messages that I get that are just like, so short and generic, really target someone, you know, explain why is it that you want to talk to that person? What specifically about their experience do you want to learn about? What can you do for them? You know, you can't just do a copy and paste situation won't work. It won't work. And typically the people that you want to reach out to, they're getting so many DMs, they're getting so many messages from people. So you want to differentiate yourself. And it's a matter of being genuine and thinking about how to add value. Like you said, that really will take you a long way. So thinking about Sarah Flint, you know, in 2015, you were in Barney's and a lot of higher end retailers. But at some point, you actually decided to close down your wholesale business and relaunch the brand as a direct to consumer company. You know, I'm sure that was a tough decision, especially as a company who had pretty significant revenues from high end retailers to decide to stop all that and revamp the business and try to go online. So I'd love to hear more about that moment in your company and really what motivated you to go down that new route. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, when I started the brand, that was how you sold luxury shoes in luxury department stores. That was how you got credibility. It was the beginning of sort of like the digital revolution around direct to consumer brands, but it was the beginning in with the Warby Parkers and the Caspers and the, it was eyeglasses and mattresses, not really luxury shoes or luxury products. And I think, you know, within a few years from launch, that started to change and you started to see more and more direct to consumer brands and a little bit not on the luxury fashion side, but on the fashion side. 
And to be honest, I'm a quite a competitive person. And I started seeing these brands that were emerging that were, you know, creating basics that were growing so, so quickly. And I was working my tail off to make it work with these stores that I felt like didn't always represent my brand in the way that I wanted to. And on top of that, my customers were paying a huge premium on my product, which the average price point was around like $700, which is very expensive. That's, you know, certainly not what I was spending on shoes on myself at that point in my life. And so I really wanted to be able to access multiple generations of consumers. And so I felt like, wasn't there an opportunity to create a direct-to-consumer luxury brand that sort of brought the best of both worlds together? You know, the direct contact with your customer, data analytics, and optimization and ease of a direct-to-consumer business with the like incredible loyalty, lifetime value, and storytelling that you really get from luxury brands. But (laughs) we obviously had quite a wholesale business at that point. So it meant canceling orders in order for us to do that and to change our pricing structure. So we had to say goodbye to those wholesale relationships. And that meant giving up a significant amount of revenue. We had an e-commerce business, but it was a very small percentage of our business. But I really believed that that was the way forward. So we did that. We did a bridge round with our existing investors to sort of get us to where we needed to, to prove it. We then went out and tried to raise capital, which was probably the most naive thing I've ever done because I went out and said, Hey, I had this solid growing business at wholesale, but I gave it up to do this because I believe it will be more successful. And every single person I met with was like, yeah, okay. Like, show us, like, I'd love to talk to you in six months. So it was a challenge and we weren't able to raise the money that we thought that we needed at that point, especially because the comps that we were looking at were these direct-to-consumer brands that had raised tens of millions of dollars and to for digital advertising and things like that. What we realized quite quickly and what happened very quickly once we made the switch to -to direct-to-consumer was that we had so much buzz around the transition in terms of where we had come from with the credibility of these department stores and the celebrity following that we had, the kinds of press that we were getting in the Harper's Bazaars and the Vogue's of the world. Those are things that are traditionally very expensive for direct Mm -hmm. consumer brands to get. We didn't have to pay for any of them because we had already established that following. And so, you know, within the first two months of our switch to direct to consumer, we had sold out of the majority of our best selling styles. Mid year that year, we had 25K people on the wait list for our Natalie Platt, which is our our best selling style. And I did bring in Cindy Crawford, who had been a longtime fan of the brand, came in as an investor and a marketing partner. So she helped to sort of spread the word about this transition and allowed us to sort of get some press on the transition. And this was all free press at the time. You weren't paying out of pocket to get in front of people. We We did digital marketing for the first time, which we hadn't been doing before we moved to direct to consumer. But, you know, very little digital marketing. We weren't spending millions of dollars a month on it. We were spending like, I think our budgets were a couple thousand dollars a month in the beginning period, but we didn't need it. And our customers were so excited. Like the viral response to this happening, people saying, oh, this is the shoe brand I discovered at Barney's and I used to pay $800 for them. And now they're selling the same exact shoes, same quality for half of that. That was really, really exciting to see. They were 
psyched that you know we had made this decision that was benefiting them and ultimately really benefited us as well too so yeah and when you made that transition you know when you decided to cut off all this revenue and just take a leap of faith into something new you know going back to that moment a lot of entrepreneurs or business owners would not do that especially leaving a sense of stability when you finally got that brand equity and the customers there mm-hmm. were you nervous what were those feelings like when you decided to kind of pull the plug yeah i was nervous but at the same time it never felt stable to me because you never have control of what's happening in the buy with these stores you know you don't know one season can do really well and generally we were growing and doing well but we had ups and down seasons and it felt like I didn't control my own destiny because one season we would have like a huge buy from a certain store and then the next season having nothing to do with us and our sell through they could have you know a minuscule buy and I just felt like that was the most nerve wracking thing ever. I will never forget. I had one experience where I went to the shoe floor of a store and I was like, oh, the shoes weren't in the same spot that they normally were and asked where they had been moved to. And it took the sales associates 20 minutes to find the shoes and they were in two different spots. And I just thought to myself, oh my God, I'm going to wait 20 minutes to find the shoes with you because this is my business. But a customer is never going to do that ever. And so how can I, I would go into these stores once a week. I was doing everything I could to drive traffic into these places. And I wasn't reaping the benefits and my customers weren't reaping the benefits. So it just felt like ultimately it was more risky to place my bet on this sort of model that was changing so quickly. And, you know, obviously with COVID and we've seen that everything turn on its head and sort of, I think, what would have happened in 10 years has probably happened in one year. And so I guess I sort of saw that coming a little bit. Not go, yeah. but yeah. I don't know. Yeah, totally. The transition. No, that's great to hear. And I'm sure, you know, as a founder, you want to control the destiny of your business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what better way than to just go direct to consumer? It's interesting. I read another interview that you've done that in the pitch deck, you know, you talked about how hard it was when you were trying to sell this idea of creating an e-commerce site and investors were like, well, show me what you can do. It doesn't make sense to me right now. You wrote, I believe that in the numbers, you wrote that you'll have 150 percent growth rate. And it's kind of a yeah. blessing you didn't get money because you ended up doubling that. So can you kind of share yeah. your experience with the numbers and what really ended up happening? Yeah. I mean, every entrepreneur knows this. You can make your projections as much as you want, but especially at that point, we were basing conversion rate on how much traffic we were getting to the site, but like we weren't driving traffic there before and we hadn't done digital marketing before. So it was all a lot of guesswork and to grow 150% felt like a huge, huge thing to me that year. But ultimately, I mean, it was, it was a huge blessing that we didn't raise that money because I think we would have ended up, we would have spent it. We would have spent it on digital marketing, which we didn't end up needing. We were able to drive it without that. And I think that's sort of been our continued approach to growing the business is sort of figuring out innovative ways to acquire customers and get the word out about the brand that are less expensive because you can spend so, 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 so much money on customer acquisition online. And that's a a very slippery slope. You know, even during this period in time, you know, we had our first ever pop-up shop last fall, which was amazing and one of the highlights of my life. And I wish, I wish that we were doing more of them now, but We will again at some point. And that was a huge part of our growth plan this year because we saw just unbelievable numbers there. 
And so when COVID hit, we had to sort of reevaluate where that growth growth was coming from. And so we sort of worked on two programs, one that I had started when we switched to direct to consumer and one that I had not worked on before, but had always sort of been part of my DNA, which was that you mentioned driving the U-Haul up across the country with my best friend early in the business, which we had all of these amazing trunk shows at different, whether they were clubs or women's homes or things like that. And there is an old business that has become sort of a new business again, which is that there are women who are direct sellers that host these types of events, selling to their friends. They're professional stylists. They do everything from, you know, organize women's closets and put their looks together to host these types of events. And so with the lack of stores for people to go in, my thought immediately went to, okay, well, where are people, you know, when they do want advice from sort of a sales associate, essentially, who will they go to? And so we started a direct selling program with a number of stylists who basically take a commission and introduce their clients to Sarah Flint. And then we also have this incredible brand ambassador program, which was something I started right when we moved to -to direct-to-consumer. I think one of my biggest concerns was because we are so focused on comfort and fit and quality, I was concerned about how we were going to get that message across through digital marketing and without people being able to feel, touch, um, you know, experience that firsthand. And I've always felt like I can see an ad six times, but if, you know, my best friend or the woman in my community who I consider most stylish tells me, oh, I just found this new product. It's incredible. This is why. I'm going to pull the trigger that much faster. And so we started working with our top customers, with micro-influencers. And I'm talking about people like you or me, who probably have a couple thousand followers on Instagram, but not a couple hundred thousand. And working with them to promote the brand and share it with their friends and incentivize them to do that with shoes. So we have a large network of women now who have you know discount codes that they share with their communities and they receive shoes for converting new customers. I mean, that is such a creative way, right? Like you mentioned, when you have to be scrappy and think about ways to market, especially for a luxury product, thinking about how customers can feel comfortable, right? When they can't touch and feel it because they're not in the stores anymore. But to see the way you've grown that community, you know, how has it also evolved over time? Because I know you've seen so much success with the ambassador program. And I think it's helpful to talk about because, you know, anyone who's starting a business, you can create an amazing product that is top notch, but without marketing or getting in the hands of buyers, it's not a business. So how has the ambassadors program really evolved from when you first started it early on? Yeah, I think early on, I really thought it was going to be about people introducing the brand to their friends. I think what the, it has evolved into that I didn't anticipate and that has been, you know, like probably my greatest joy and pleasure during this COVID period is that it's become really a community and a network of women. So, you know, we have almost weekly Zooms with, you know, different activities and things. And we have women who have are from the same area that didn't know each other before that have now become friends. And I think that has been a real change and something I didn't know was going to happen. But I think it's part of what's made the program so valuable is that we are, you know, beyond women getting free shoes, which everybody loves. It's given people another network and, you know, sort of like something to get behind in a period that can be very isolating. 
Absolutely. No, it's beautiful to hear that you guys can now do that with that community that you've built. And, you know, you've kind of alluded to this, but COVID clearly has impacted so many businesses, right? I mean, like you said, your growth strategy for this year was to be in multiple pop-up shops and you had to be creative and think about that. How has experience been for you thinking about when you had to pivot and what are some other things that you've done or how has a company shifted if it has during this time with COVID? Because are people still looking to buy certain shoes given that we're now all quote unquote at home more so? Mm -hmm. How has that really impacted your business? Yeah, I mean, from a product standpoint, certainly we've made a number of changes, you know, doing less dressy styles, adding a slipper, which we call our house shoe, which we launched two weeks ago and sold out. Oh, (laughs) I'm excited. Yeah, I'll check it out. (laughs) And then I have always sort of envisioned not just building a single product category, but building sort of a lifestyle and a brand, you know, around this idea of creating the kinds of products that really bring them delight and they actually want to use in their real lives. And so I actually, for the first time, hired a CEO. Oh, <laughs> um, congratulations. Mary uh, came on a week before we went to work from home. So, so that was a not ideal timing, but I've been very, very grateful to have her. And Part of the reason that I brought Mary in was to sort of figure out the strategy and the timing around additional product categories and really figuring out, you know, how we create the next great American lifestyle brand that's, you know, built for today's consumer who is digitally native and and all of that. And Mary's background, she comes from Kate Spade. And uh, she started there at a time when it was primarily a handbag business and grew that business tremendously to include home and stationery and all kinds of different other categories. And we were already launching scarves in the spring, which ended up to be very fortuitous because it seems to be what everybody is wearing now on Zoom calls. You can With wear Zoom, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I can wear a white t-shirt and throw on a scarf and feel that much more dressed up. And we launched actually stationery this fall with Crane Company, which is a collaboration. And as we sort of looked at the need for shoes when people are spending more time inside or going to the office or to events or weddings or graduations or things like that, it's certainly pushed us a little faster towards a lot of those other categories. And that's been really exciting. I don't think that we would have moved so quickly on some of these had we not seen such early success with scarves and stationery and a change in what people are doing and where they're spending their time. I don't know if I'm supposed to divulge this, but we have a, a product that's coming out um, in the new year that is very, it just makes total sense for where we are right now. And I think will be quite delightful for everyone. So I think from a product standpoint, it's moved us much more quickly towards lifestyle. And even from a content standpoint, you know, I think early on, it was very difficult. We didn't know what was going on. And I felt like, particularly, you know, how do we talk about shoes and how do we talk about fashion when it feels like the world is falling apart around us? And it felt sort of frivolous and distasteful. And so I had sort of like a long, hard think about it and, you know, long discussions with Mary and with the team and ended up sort of writing a letter to our customers and to our followers and sort of saying, this is an incredibly challenging time for the world, for everyone. Ultimately, 
we realize that shoes and fashion aren't the most important thing, but they are our thing. And we are a business that has to keep going, that has employees. And so we're going to continue to launch new product and to try and bring, you know, momentary distraction because no one could or should be distracted from all that's going on in the world today. But how can we sort of bring those sort of momentary moments of delight and distraction. And it was very, very well received. And it ended up leading us in a direction where we've, you know, done a lot more things from a content perspective, like, as everyone's been spending more time cooking, we had our production manager when Italy was closed, he was cooking with his mother and grandmother every weekend. And so we started doing these cooking with Mattia segments where he would make you know incredible Italian dishes. And I started doing flower arrangement segments and things like that, that places where we all have been spending our time, but are just really sort of light and happy. And you and I were talking about weddings before this. Congratulations to you. you and, too. you know, even with things like that, when it came to launching, we had a bridal shoe that was launching in the spring. And I was like, oh my God, how are we going to launch a bridal shoe when every wedding, including my own, has just been postponed, canceled, but felt so insensitive. And so what we ended up doing is saying, look, these weddings, these moments will happen at some point, and they'll be even more special when they do. And this is what we're presenting and what we want you to see for when those moments do happen. And I think that's great. The direct dialogue that you have with your community and your clients and how transparent you were in terms of your thoughts and feelings around launching the products. And I think, you know, so much of the conversation from your customers can really help guide you, especially in, you know, the more difficult and uncertain times that we're in right now. And it clearly is the case for you and how you've navigated this year. So one thing I'd love to get your perspective on as well, and we talk about this a lot with different entrepreneurs, but clearly, you know, your ride has been far from easy. It's been quite the roller coaster, especially this year with all the pivoting that you've been doing. But do you have any tips or rituals that you do on a daily basis that helps your mental health? Because, you know, as an entrepreneur, it is so tough to be the leader every single day and always making sure that you're on point, even when things can be difficult. So I'd love to just hear more about what works for you. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the challenge, of course, in the beginning is that every downturn or pivot feels like it's sort of the end of the world and like you can't get through it. And what I realized, and it probably took me almost two years maybe to get to that point, is that those moments pass and you figure them out and often better things come from it. I would say by no means am I grateful for COVID, but I don't think that we would have been launching these categories had it not happened. And so, you know, it sounds sort of tried to say that everything happens for a reason, but it sort of does. And you just have to remind yourself. I, I mean, I wish, I wish, and I'm sure people told me this in the beginning and I didn't listen to it, but just sort of knowing this is a really crappy time and we're going to get through it was helpful. It has been helpful to me now. I think trying to, and I'm not the best at this, but trying to take time for yourself every now and then is good. I'm sort of a person that does really well by powering through in chunks and then recharging. I don't know if that's the same for you, but... Um, it is, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not a person that's... I don't like, know if that's good or bad, but... <laughs> I don't meditate every morning. I can't do that. I have to like get through this moment and this hurdle and this sprint and then take a break after that. I think that's probably 
one of my tips is the sprints and then rests. Do you feel like in your life right now, you know, clearly you're now planning a wedding, you have a beautiful partner, you're very family oriented. Do you think running a high growth business over the past few years, has it been tough to kind of balance your personal life with your professional life? Or how do you integrate the two? Definitely. I mean, it's just not easy. It's not easy at all. And I think, I think what it's done for me is really define who and what is most important to me in my life. And I've figured out ways to make that a priority and those people a priority. And then, you know, it's made my network smaller, I would say, like my intimate, close network smaller. But that doesn't bother me because, you know, I have the people that are important for me. But it's not easy. That's a constant struggle. And I think it's about surrounding yourself with people who understand that and who are like-minded and want similar things. Yeah. No, I definitely agree, especially in a partner, for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. But the thing about partners are like you go through different things at different times, right? One person can be having a great couple of months and the other person is probably having a bad couple of months. And you just have to figure out how to support each other in that. It's true. Really having that understanding for each other and compassion when, you know, one person is going through a more difficult time is so key. And I would love to close on one last question exactly. that we love to ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. What does wealth mean to you at this point in your life? To me, it means having things, people, moments around you that make you happy and that bring you joy. I've probably said that like six times, but I'm all about moments of joy right now. Oh, thousand percent. Um, if anything, I think this year has made me more critical on like you, you know, keeping the people around me, doing things in my life that brings me joy. Because if you don't focus on that, it's been such a tough year for everybody. So it's it's good that you're talking about it. And I think more people should be focusing on joy, even the littlest things in your life that bring you happiness. Yeah. And trying to make yourself have those moments and give yourself be a little kind to yourself. <laughs> I think we all have to be more kind to ourselves right now than ever and kind to our partners and our friends and family. But I think that ultimately that's what it means when it comes to, you know, monetary wealth. I would say creating wealth and creating, you know, a strong business and ultimately for me is about making success for everyone around me and for my employees, for my investors, for the world so that I can do great things and enjoy things, but um, do good for the world. I love that. Well, thank you, Sarah, so much for joining us and sharing your incredible story. It was a blast to have you on. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.